Lesson five, gathering for judgment, anguish, abasement, anger, and action. Here we're going to look at 114 down to 2-3. And the first thing we see is the anguish of this day that's coming. But we notice initially about the anguish of that day that one of the things that makes it uh, such an anguish to God's people is its imminence. Look at the way verse 14 puts this. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. We talked about this a, a bit earlier, and you're going to see a lot of repeated themes now as we enter into this judgment section of Zephaniah. But the day of the Lord and its near-term fulfillment in the Babylonian captivity, it's about 40 to 50 years away. So it's a generation away, and yet it's called near. Well, in what sense can a generation away be called uh, near? Well, it's in the sense that this is the day of the Lord is a prophecy of multiple levels and prototypes when we think about the fact that the day of the Lord refers to the incarnation as well, uh, to the final coming of Christ. When you think of that horizon, then the coming Babylonian captivity certainly qualifies as near. But eschatological nearness isn't necessarily talking about the chronology. It's talking about imminence. When is the day of the Lord coming? Well, any moment. Could be a thousand years, but it's imminent. And for them, it's the coming of the judgment which would be on Babylon. For some, they recognized that this has some reference to the coming of God Himself in that great day, in the inauguration of the kingdom of the Messiah. Those who heard the message of Zephaniah with ears of faith understood that ultimately this judgment is going to fall at the threshold of eternity, and only those who are God's honored guests at His banquet feast could be spared the judgment. And that reaches its full significance in the New Testament. Now, all of that's contained in the book of Zephaniah, but it's not unpacked. And that's why it's imminent, because it can happen at any moment. Paul speaks in this kind of way when he writes in Philippians 4 5, the time is near. Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. True believers in Zephaniah's day understood the coming of the day of the Lord was near. And it's near and it's hastening fast. The Messiah has yet to be revealed but they are to expect Him, they're to look for Him. And even as we look back upon His coming, and we look for His coming again today, it's a day that's always near. It's a day that's on the horizon. It's a day in the light of which we then are to live our lives. Well, that's the nearness of the day or the <clears throat> imminence of the day, but the intensity of the day. And we see this in verses 15 through 18. The Day of judgment is mentioned seven times in the next two verses, and there are five sets of catastrophes. Uh, bad things come in twos uh, in, in Zephaniah. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty embattlements. Uh, here's a, five sets of couplets, and they have a parallel meaning in which Zephaniah is now casting the day in terms of the Exodus event. Those who kept the covenant stipulations would be spared the sanctions of the great king who instituted his covenant and prefaced his stipulations with the reminder of the Egyptian captivity back in Genesis, or sorry, back in Exodus chapter 20. 
the covenant breakers are going to face now the penalty on a broader scale, though, than even Pharaoh and his armies faced. The day of the Lord is going to be a parallel day to the Egyptian judgment. And so Zephaniah says, first, it's going to be a day of wrath. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 7, you sent for your wrath. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. It's a day of distress and anguish, Zephaniah says. In Exodus 3, we read, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. The Hebrew word for uh, affliction, sarah, is uh, the translated uh, distress in the version we're using here, the ESV. Uh, basically, what's happening now is God is going to be the afflictor of Judah because of her sin. It's a day of ruin and devastation. Leviticus 26.31 speaks of the covenant sanctions of ruin, of desolation for disobedience after God's deliverance. It's a day of darkness and gloom. And again, we hearken back to the Exodus event, thick darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days. A day of clouds and thick darkness, says Zephaniah. Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21, the cloud which was to the Egyptians a cloud and darkness to them. But at the same time, that is a light to the people of Israel. It's a day of trumpet and battle cries, says Zephaniah. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 18, the appearance of God, the giving of His law. <clears throat> and these characteristics of the day, clouds and thick darkness, once again, Zephaniah is hearkening back to the scene of creation as he does again and again throughout the prophecy. The day of the Lord it's a destruction of that old creation, and it's the consummation of a new creation. So he's casting it now, again, in terms of this creation scene, this dual purpose of the clouds and thick darkness as depicting both creation and exodus. And that's significant. Klein puts it this way in God, Heaven, and Armageddon. Moses depicts the operation of the Shekinah cloud in behalf of Israel in the wilderness in terms that recall the creational situation described in Genesis 1-2. God appears against the Egyptians, but He appears for His people now, Zephaniah is prophesying, in a new creation event. He's going to judge those who have become Egyptians, and He's going to deliver those who are the remnant. And He's going to manifest His royal authority in this day of clouds and thick darkness as He manifested Himself at creation, at the exodus, at the giving of the law, at the incarnation of His Son, at the consummation when the Son will come in clouds and power and glory, Luke 27, fulfilling again that cloud imagery of Daniel 7 and the coming of the Son of Man. And that's one of the reasons this cloud imagery that we have when God comes, that's one of the reasons it's so significant when at the baptism of Jesus, a cloud overshadows Christ himself. And Luke's not just giving you a description of the scenery. And Zephaniah is not just giving you a description of the scenery. He's telling you that God himself has arrived. God with us is here. And then the voice from the cloud, the voice of the ancient of days saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And that's the message of Zephaniah. Later on in Luke, when Jesus begins to describe the end of days, he describes it in terms that are very similar to what Zephaniah uses here. And he concludes by saying, you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. And then what happens? Then your redemption is drawing near. 
So in the day of the Lord, there is this reversal of creation and a new creation. We'll also see that in verse 17, no longer able to see, they're in darkness. God creates the light to shine forth and reveal his creation, but now he's going to withdraw the light. The sinner will not be able to see. And here's another anticipation, I think, of the work of Jesus, because what will the Messiah do when he comes? He opens those blind eyes. And then Zephaniah says this, verse 17, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung. This is violence. What a picture. It's not just violence, but it's violence to a blind man. This is a blind man in the faith. Violence is bad enough. Not being able to really to anticipate it, not being able to see it and where it's coming from is worse. And here's a picture that once again, what Zephaniah is doing over and over is removing any trace of hope that you have. You can't see even. Not only can't you defend yourself, but you can't see. And it reminds us this picture of this blood being poured out like dust of revelation the blood that flows up to the horse's bridles, the judgment of Armageddon, the, the mountain of God's judgment, outside of repentance and faith in Christ, what's going to save you? You know, your wealth? Well, Zephaniah has eliminated that. Uh, your smarts? And he answers the question of verse 18, neither your silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. God's anger is portrayed then by Zephaniah as a burning fire that's going to consume everything that violates his holy character. We're going to visit this again when we get down to that description in chapter 3 and verse 8. But for now, we can simply note that at the time of Noah, there's a complete wiping away of all things. The world that then was, as Peter puts it, perishes through flood. And Peter reminds us that by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until this day of judgment that Zephaniah is talking about. When the fire of God's anger comes, nothing is going to remain. There's nothing outside of Christ. Zephaniah is saying you can't run. There, there are lots of things that you can run from. You can fail an exam and you can take it again, you know, next year. Or if you're like my kids in college, you could take it 50 times until you got the grade that you uh, wanted to get. Uh, you can run from paying your taxes. You can run from the law. You know, you can run to the other side of the globe. You can breathe. You can run. But then you can't. There's not going to be any place left for you to hide. There's nowhere left to run. The searchlight will find you. There's nothing left to save you. This is not good news unless the book continues, and thankfully it does. Zephaniah goes on to speak of how this is going to bring redemption. But what's happening here is that the people of God are being called to measure themselves against the words the prophets spoken. They're being challenged to a response. The divine judgment is being urged on them, and you'd better act now. Reflect on this and repent. One writer put it this way, Now, if ever, the occasion must be seized. The place for repentance must be found, occupied, secured. They've forgotten and abandon the Lord their God. Let them seek the Lord. They've been unrighteous. Let them seek righteousness. They've been proud and self-confident. Let them seek humility. 
And in this radical change of spiritual character and attitude and bias lies their only hope, their only chance of escaping destruction. They must seek the Lord. And so Zephaniah calls them to gather. As we start chapter 2, now gather together, yes, gather together, O shameless nation. And Exodus once again is building upon the Exodus motif. The people are told to gather together. It's an interesting way it puts this because this particular word is a repetition of the Hebrew word for gathering straw. It's a word that is used in Exodus 5-7. It's used in Numbers chapter 15, 32 and 33 to speak of gathering straw or gathering wood for the bricks of the Egyptians. And Zephaniah is picturing the helpless and scattered position of Judah. This is how weak you are. You've become scattered. You're, you're like straw blown about by the winds of, of empires, like, like dried hay being scattered by a, by a leaf blower. You're all over the place. You've been scattered. And this description then of a shameless nation. And that's interesting because they ought to be a shameful nation, wouldn't you think? And it is a little bit difficult to translate it. Some translations do say that you're a shameful nation. The NIV puts it that way. Our translation says shameless nation. Uh, the New King James uh, renders it undesirable nation. That seems to be a legitimate way to put it, but I, I think the ESV is putting the right spin on it here. Uh, a more tr- a straightforward translation of this might say something like having no longing, having no uh, hunger. This is a nation with no longing for God, no hunger for His Word. Oh, how I love your law, uh, David says. It is my meditation. It is my delight. All through Psalm, especially Psalm 119, the law of God is wonderful. I look for it. I search for it. I go after it here. I have no desire for God. I have no desire for His Word. So the idea is that they're, they're so far removed from covenant-keeping that they just don't have any concept of their sin. God created man in His image for fellowship with Him. He was the crown of creation. He's given dominion over the kingdom. He's to reign as a king in the garden temple where God walks with Him. But now because of sin, they're reduced to a nation that has no shame. They're not even aware of God's presence. There's no awareness of His holiness. The law reveals sin, and they don't know the law. And their inability to be shamed by it speaks of their ignorance to God's covenant law. And this picture of being shameless is interesting. Genesis chapter 2, that closes with the remark that in their innocence, under the covenant of works, Adam and Eve were both naked, man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, the word here in Genesis 2.25 is, or back in Genesis 2.25 is different from that in Zephaniah 1-2. But when we get to 3-5, we'll see it uses the same word as Genesis 2-25 when it says that the unjust knows no shame. I think there's a, a link here between the lack of shame in Zephaniah because of man's ignorance to the law and the lack of shame in the garden because of man's innocence. There's a lot of wordplay going on back there in Genesis 2, uh, 25. And, and the, the word naked back in Genesis 2, 25 means more than just that, you know, they didn't have clothes on. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it's morally 
they're naked. Morally, they have nothing to hide. There's no shame in them. The word used for uh, naked, arumim, a play on the word arum, used to describe the craftiness. The opposite of that is Satan. He's arumim, or he's arum. He's crafty. They are arumim. They are naked. They are innocent. They are open. The serpent isn't. He's sly. He's sneaky. Adam and Eve are innocent, open. What's being accentuated is the antithesis of these two of these two natures. But then sin enters the picture, and what happens? Man becomes ashamed, and he hides himself. There's an, another undoing of creation. Destruction enters. Instead of building the garden temple, Adam is expelled from the garden temple, and weeds and thistles have the upper hand. Creation's now going to work against Adam. And this point on, then there's a scattering, and there's an undoing, and man is driven from the garden. He's annihilated from the earth, except for Noah and his family. He's dispersed from Babel. When we get to Zephaniah, now there's a gathering, and there's a gathering now of all those people who lost the concept of God's law. There's a gathering of those people who've lost that concept of shame that was known by Adam and Eve. As the first parents were not ashamed in their innocence, the Judahites are not ashamed in their wickedness. It's the result of sin. Zephaniah 3.5 will say this again, the condition of the unjust is that he knows no shame. So now gather gather together, you who know no shame, for the judgment. Before the decree takes effect, verse 2, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. You might notice by now there's a lot of repetition in Zephaniah. He's hammering it in. The judgment's coming. There's a vivid picture of this in Isaiah 5, 24 as a tongue of fire consumes the stubble, as dry, glass, as dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, their blossom will blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, they've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Zephaniah is giving us another picture that is both uh, Pentateuchal and eschatological the fire of the judgment of God that consumes like the stubble. It's seen in the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, in the plague of fire and hail upon Egypt, Exodus 9, the pillar of fire that troubled the Egyptians, Exodus 14. It's reminiscent of the Sinai covenant where God is a consuming fire as He gives His law. And at the same time, it looks forward to the judgment stubble in, uh, uh, in Christ. Uh, John says He will clean out His threshing floor. He will gather the wheat into the barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, Matthew 3. This is the judgment of the fire of the day of the Lord in which heaven will be dissolved by a consuming fire and all the elements will melt. Imagine this, all of the elements will melt with a fervent heat, 2 Peter 3. So what's God saying here? Judah is going to the fire. They are stubble. They've been scattered, their chaff, perhaps as well the, the symbolic of the fact that they have become insignificant, unworthy, like stubble that's going to be burned away in the day of judgment, undesirable. And again, the point here is it's hopeless. And it seems like time for repentance is past. But there are those in the house of Judah that have been obedient. They've walked according to the way of God's covenant. 
And there are others who ought to see that testimony and repent. And so God gives a warning of judgment that they can take action, these undesirable people, before the day of the Lord appears. He's gathering them together for judgment, but He's gathering them together so that they might repent. We read in verse 2, before God issues the decree. Now we know about the decrees of God. We know that He foreordains everything that's to come to pass. The day of judgment is set. Well, we don't know when it is, but it will come fast, suddenly. And that's the emphasis, the focus here. The word picture given in verse 2, like chaff, speaks of the fact that the opportunity for repentance is going to vanish instantly. And then once again, the repetition. The last part of verse 2, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. The anger of the Lord is coming, and it's an explosive anger. It's not out of control. It's a controlled explosion. The word for hurrah is a word that speaks of heat or burning, like, like your, your face, angry, burning anger. And it's linked here to off, which is related to enough, to, to breathe or, or to snort, uh, the sudden snorting of a horse. And the picture here is God is coming in a sudden explosion of anger that's going to take place on the day of the Lord. So there's a, a double meaning, I think, here to the picture of the chaff that burns so quickly. It represents how fast the opportunity for repentance is going to vanish. And it represents how quickly, how hotly, the anger of God is going to burn against sin. God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He prepares for himself instruments of death. God's saying the wages of death is coming. This is coming upon the disobedient, even the disobedient people of God. And the wrath of God will be poured out upon the unbelieving people of Judah. A picture of the wrath of God poured out on the great day of judgment upon the disobedient, even disobedient members of churches. Even disobedient members of the covenant community. They've heard God's law, but they don't obey it. What's the remedy? What are you going to do? God's anger, it burns against sin. You can't save yourself. That's inevitable, right? No. It's not inevitable. Many of them go through the judgment, but God issues an imperative and He demands a response. Verse 3, it's a call for action. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Covenant faithfulness demands a response of repentance. And that's what Zephaniah is all about, right? This covenant document. This is the curse upon Israel for disobedience to God's law. Keep the law. Be obedient. Problem is we can't. <laughs> and we've already broken it. The wrath of God must be satisfied. The payment must be made. But in God's gracious provision of His covenant, humanity isn't left to perish in the fire for violations of the covenant of works. What can he do? He can turn to the lamb who has been slain on his behalf. He can seek his face, turn from their wicked way. So there's a threefold admonition here. Seek. First, seek Yahweh. Then seek righteousness. Finally, seek humility to seek the Lord. It's almost this idea of seeking the Lord is almost a technical term for obedience. Obey. Certainly Judah 
sought to be delivered. (laughs) they, They wanted deliverance on their own terms, without obedience. However, even for many who wanted to obey, they didn't. They couldn't. They couldn't possibly keep the law. There were many then who simply sought to hide from God's judgment. Since the time of Adam's hiding in the garden, at the sound of the judgment coming of God, people have sought to hide. But what's Zephaniah telling us? You can't hide. There's nowhere to hide. Or maybe there's one place. Verse 3, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Perhaps you may be hidden. It's not a certain thing. Zephaniah here is echoing the words of Joel chapter 2. Who knows whether God will not turn and relent? Now, if you're self-confident and self-righteous and you've got any inkling of the need for repent, this certainly undermines your self-confidence. Who knows whether God will turn and relent? Perhaps you may be hidden. That's a scary word, maybe. If I were an unbeliever with any spiritual sense of conviction at all, I'd find this terrifying. Perhaps God will save you. Perhaps God will hide you. But don't presume that you can continue to reject the offer of salvation and then any time just extend your hand and grab it. Some in Israel, they had taken the attitude that they could violate God's covenant stipulations all they want. And then they could repent whenever they want. Zephaniah is saying repentance is not a mechanical function. You, you can't control God. You can't, uh, you know, keeping the law isn't like pushing the save button on God's control box. You know, I've done this, now boom, you need to save me. And that's why repentance is urged now. Do it now, before the decree is issued. And these three imperatives should shock the Judahites, and they ought to shock us to action. First, seek the Lord, seek Yahweh, recognize that God alone is the true God, has come to dwell with us in His Son, Jesus Christ, by His Spirit. Second, seek righteousness. In this context, it means don't look to your own righteousness. You're not going to save yourself. Seek the righteousness, the justice, the perfections of God in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. Third, seek humility. And if humility can be perhaps defined as not thinking of yourself more highly than you should, here it means don't think that you're able to save yourself, uh, that you can do more to save yourself than you can. Seek to recognize the justice of God alone is going to do away with sin and deliver the righteous. Psalm 76.9 tells us this, when God arose to judgment, He saved the humble of the earth. And I think the way this is written doesn't mean that these are things that you can find when you look for them real hard. When you search the world over for them, then maybe you'll find them. Like, you know, you, you, you may, your, your late uncle died and, and left a legendary stash of gold coins, you know, and if I just look hard enough, then maybe I'll find them. Now, the way it's written suggests these are things you ask God for. That's where you seek them. God might have mercy upon you and show you himself through His Word, grant you His righteousness through His Son. He might humble you that you might be lifted up. So seek Him, seek Yahweh, seek righteousness, seek humility. And if you do, perhaps you may be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. In this section, Zephaniah is uh, making it clear, if he hasn't already, there is no escaping the judgment. 
There's no comfort in thinking that if you belong to a particular group of people, Israel, or a particular group of people like uh, the church, or a particular nationality, or a particular socioeconomic strata, that you'll be spared. In Malachi 3.2, we read, Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He's like a refiner's fire. The fire of God's judgment is coming. And the fire of God is the coming judgment of Jesus Christ in the day when the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple as God came to the garden temple with Adam and Eve to pronounce judgment. You know where we see language like this again? It's in Revelation 6. The opening of the sixth seal in the day of God's wrath, those who don't trust in God, they say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on his throne. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who's able to stand? Zephaniah is saying when that day comes, no one will be able to stand. No one will be able to endure it unless they're found hidden in Jesus Christ. You have to be hidden by God in Jesus, because the wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus Christ so that He would endure the punishment of those who are hidden in Him. Christ keeps the law of Moses, the covenant of works. In doing so, He merits, He earns obedience for those found hidden in Him, and only He can demand, only He can satisfy the demands of the justice of a holy God. The law brings wrath, Romans 4. It's Christ's keeping of it and yet bearing that wrath, Zephaniah 2, 2 here, that brings salvation to God's people that Paul speaks of in Romans 5, 9. So this first section then of Zephaniah, we close out now this first section. The coming of justice in the day of the Lord. This day of wrath is no longer a day of dread for the believer. It's a day for which those who are hidden in Christ wait expectantly, even look forward to it, because Jesus has delivered us from it. He's delivered us from the wrath of God. It's a day of hope. It's a day when sin and the sinners who propagate it will be annihilated, opening the way for the saints of God to sing His praises uninhibited by the assaults of the world and the flesh and the devil.